In our reading today, we continue to read from Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be reading from verses 19 through to 39. So that's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 <clears throat> to 39. <clears throat> Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know who him said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, as we come into your presence again this morning, we long to hear your voice. We know your word, Lord, we have read it, and we know that it is unfathomable riches because it contains the mystery of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray again this morning that as we peruse it, we would indeed do more than peruse it. We would hear it in a way that it challenges us to our core. Lord, that you would not let any one of us perish 
Lord, if there be anyone here that still does not yet know you, I pray that today would be the day that you would call them into your kingdom. Father, please help us now to be attentive. Help me to diminish and to faithfully speak the truth of your word. And help us to be attentive, help our hearts to be inclined, desiring to see you, to save you, to know you, and to declare you when we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, Chapel Street. Morning, Good day to the visitors that we've got. We're a small group here, even smaller today. Some others are away, some are online. Good morning to you. And good day to the people that will listen on the podcast uh, later, especially our friends in America. Uh, for those that are unaware, we've been going through Hebrews for a year and a half now. And I'm hoping that this year is the year that we'll move on out of Hebrews into uh, whatever we have to do next. Uh, but I hope you've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it. It's a book that's uh, in many ways uh, one that shakes you up. It gives you a little bit of a nudge. It's uh, it uh, really quickens the heart in parts, and it's full of warnings. It's full of entreaties to persevere. And this section that Sandy just read for us, we've obviously done two messages in already, and it's neatly separated into three parts, all of which fit together. The writer of the letter is writing a letter. It's not full of sort of random concepts or ideas, there's a consistent, coherent, cogent flow of truth <laughs> that runs through it. And so we need to make sure that we adequately link the bits together. I want to remind us that the writer has been spending a lot of energy and time talking about the supremacy of Christ, talking about how he isn't an angel, but is in fact the radiance of the glory of God exact imprint of God's nature. He is God. He spends a lot of energy and time talking about Christ's mission and how he is better than all the old types and figures in the Old Testament. He serves in a better temple. He is a better high priest, indeed the great high priest. He brings a better sacrifice the outcome of that sacrifice is better than all of the Old Testament ones put together. It is done once for all, and he now intercedes for us. It's better, better, better. Jesus is supreme. But he's come to the end of that section, and he's now asking fundamentally the question, and how are you living? In the light of those truths, what is your walk like in Christ? Is it sincere? Is it authentic? Or is it just sort of part-time? Are you continuing in the old ways? And so we looked at the first part. I mentioned there are three, which began, since therefore we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ through the new and living way that he inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh, let us draw near with full assurance. Let us hold fast to our confession 
And let's keep meeting together like this. Let's keep coming to church so that we can encourage one another, so that we can exhort one another because the day is approaching. In fact, the word there says all the more because the day is approaching. Christ is coming again. And so it's a very encouraging passage about why we should come to church and that we have genuine confidence because of the finished work of Christ to enter the holy places, to hold fast our confession, to draw near, to continue to come to church. But then the second part hits like a thunderclap. For if we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If we go on sinning deliberately, what we can expect, there's a fearful expectation of judgment. And at the end of that section, he says, it is a fearful thing. It is something to fear to fall into the hands of the living God. And I spoke about this sad modern concept of what is called cheap grace, where people think that once they become a Christian and, as it were, come into the body of Christ, into the church, because grace abounds, because sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Romans 5. It's okay to continue the way you were. It's okay to continue in sin. It doesn't really matter. But this text says otherwise. This text says you need to stop sinning and continuing to sin deliberately. Now, I know we're all sinners, and I'll cover that again in this message today. But there's something about that that's willful disobedience in the light of grace. So terrible is it. This text says, if you do that, it's as if you're trampling underfoot Jesus Christ. You're profaning the blood of the covenant. You're saying, it's not really worth that much, but I'll take the grace. And you outrage the spirit of grace. Christ is offering salvation via grace. It's a gift. And so we cannot continue in the way that we used to go. And after hearing that, those first two parts, right, confidence to enter the holy place, not going on sinning, if you're like me, and I imagine the readers of this letter when they first received it, might say, so which one is it, Lord, for me? Which one is it? Is it the confidence to enter the holy places? Can I go with blessed assurance because Jesus is mine? In full assurance of faith? Because I'm still a sinner. I still sin. Do you still sin? Which one is it, Lord? And how? How will I ever know that I'm truly saved? I'm pleased to say that the third passage, which I had hoped to do last time, but it was just simply too big, brings that assurance, or at least it should bring that assurance. 
And right in the center of the passage that we're going to do today from Hebrews 10, verse 32 to the end of the chapter is verse 35, which says this, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And I find that encouraging because it clearly suggests you can throw away your confidence, which implies that you can also hold on to it, right? <laughs> it says, don't throw it away. <laughs> hold on to it. Previous passage, hold fast to your confession of faith. And that is the link, really, between this passage and the confidence that we have to enter the holy place at the beginning. Hold on to it, keep it, have it, cling to it, because there is a great reward in it. I'm going to read the passage again, just the last bit, so that we get it into our minds. Please keep your Bibles open. Now, we won't jump around too much today. I want to try and draw as much as I can out of Hebrews. Um, but I'll just read it again from Hebrews 10.32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So there, in that text, is the answer to the question, well, what about me? Am I a Christian? Which one am I in, Lord? Have I got that confidence? Or am I the one that's going to be judged because I continue in sin? And it might not be apparent to you straight away. There are other things I should say in the Bible. This isn't exhaustive, this passage. The Bible teaches that there is evidence um, that you're a Christian if you're being sanctified. There's a change. Uh, for example, if you start to grow humility, it doesn't happen naturally. None of us are humble by nature. We're quite the opposite. We're self-centered and proud and haughty. But if there is a change in your heart and through suffering and experience and the word of God and the spirit, things start to change. You start to um, walk by the spirit and not by the world or by the self or the flesh. Uh, you grow then they're great signs, and you really need to be looking for those. Uh, I suggest to us all that often we look for those in others, or perhaps we look for the absence of them, <laughs> which isn't good. But we should be concerned about, about whether that's happening in us. But this text gives us something else in addition to those things. And I've just got three different points that come out of this text. They're very quick. Shouldn't take us too long today. 
They're simple points, at least I hope they are. And what they do is they demonstrate Christian character. Christian character. So let me go through them. Point number one, when suffering comes, Christians get on with the job. When suffering comes, Christians get on with the job. Just look at it again. Recall in former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Context here is suffering. When he says recall the former days, he's literally meaning go back and think about that time when you were enlightened, literally when you became a Christian. When the word of God came to you, the gospel came to you and you were converted and you believed and decided that you might want to follow Christ. Go back and remember what those days were like. Now this book is written in approximately AD 60, just before the fall of Jerusalem, when Rome sacks uh, Jerusalem, people sacks the whole of Israel and leaves. But there's a lot of persecution around at that time. We've prayed for some of the persecuted countries in the world. There's still lots of it around. And these young, new Christians, I don't necessarily mean young in age, but they were young, certainly in faith, immediately went in and experienced suffering. And that's their context. Hard struggles. There are easy struggles, it's true, but these are hard struggles. Sufferings. Things that you feel that are heavy, that hurt. That's what suffering is. There's different forms of it. Publicly exposed to reproach. Being out in public and having people say they're Christians, they're no good. Being afflicted. And then he says this. And sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison <laughs> and the four there obviously links those two sentences together they were partners with those so treated because they had compassion on those in prison so their compassion in spite of their suffering now, generally speaking, in the world without Christ, suffering gives rise to revulsion of God. Seldom does it draw people towards God without the Spirit of God working in their lives. But here, these young Christians, in the midst of their affliction, have compassion on others that are in prison. And specifically, those people in prison are their Christian brothers and sisters. Read Acts. Nothing but being put in prison again and again and again. Yes, there are shipwrecks. Yes, there are miracles. There are all these other things. But any time those Christians spoke out, they got put in jail. Most of Paul's best work is written from him being in jail. <laughs> Praise God for that, right? Affliction. So these Christians are being put in jail and the ones that the writer here is writing to is to say, you kind of felt their pain. You had compassion for them. You visited them in prison. You see, back then, prisons were not like they are now. Not that I've been to prison. 
but I know that they're quite plush compared to what they were like in the ancient days. Jailers didn't pop round with plates of food. That's a myth. That didn't happen back in these days. The only way you had food is if someone brought you food. Well, who was going to bring you food? Members of your family. In this case, it was the Christian family. And that was the kind of compassion they had. Do you need something? Are you unwell? Can I find that wound that you've got because you've been scourged for believing in Christ? So when suffering comes, Christians, real Christians, get on with the work. They don't shrink back. They press on. Now, if you're a Christian and your friends have been put in prison because they're Christian, it's very big risk to you to go to prison to visit them. Do you know that? Chances are you may not get out or you're one of them. Right, let's put you in here. Because Satan and the world didn't want the gospel, didn't want Jesus. And so they tried again and again to shut them up by affliction and suffering. And yet these Christians had compassion. They got on with the work. They didn't run and hide, run and hide. They took the risk and they said, we need to visit our brothers and sisters in, in prison. So point number one, when suffering comes, Christians get on with the work. Point number two, when suffering comes, Christians focus on a better and a lasting possession. Did you see it? The second half of verse 34, I read it all. For you had compassion on those in prison. Joyfully, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I need to start by explaining the word plundering. I suspect we all have an idea of what the word plundering means. It's not a word that's used very often, but I want you to understand it's not just someone nipping into the house and stealing a purse or a laptop or whatever it may be. It is literally people running in and ransacking a home, usually when you're not there. Plundering most commonly happens during war. When your village or town is being besieged, I think of, of Ukraine with this, you've seen the images on the television. Houses have been laid bare, people have had to leave and the soldiers come in and they ransack the place. They steal what they want and the rest of it, they break it up. They smash the windows, they break the furniture. That's plundering, this is a big deal. Get that in your head, it's not just a little bit of food that's been pinched. It's plundering, it's devastating. And the thing that instantly blows me away about it is they joyfully accepted it. <laughs> that is amazing, don't you think? They joyfully accepted it. They didn't stop and say, oh no, why us? Why did you ransack our house and take everything that we have? They joyfully accepted it. I remember in the 1990s having the opportunity to read one of John Wesley's journals. John Wesley, in case you don't know, was an itinerant evangelist, preacher in the 1700s in the UK and America as well, he visited. And his mode of transport was a horse, and he would literally go from town to town and preach the gospel. 
And in between each town, he'd be on this horse writing uh, pamphlets and gospel messages and his journal. And I remember reading uh, one of those journals. It was amazing. The thing in that journal that stood out to me was this amazing anecdote that he wrote when he realized on horseback that whole day he'd never suffered for the sake of the gospel. And he pulled up his horse and he got off and he knelt down and he prayed and he repented. What an amazing thought. Because he'd not suffered for the sake of the gospel, which in his mind meant he'd not preached the gospel. And he repented. His prayer was a prayer of repentance. And when he stood up, there was a little boy there. And he preached the gospel to this little boy. And the boy threw rocks at him. And he was so happy. <laughs> he joyfully accepted God's interaction for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the prize, the upward call of Christ. And it's the same with the apostles. You know, I was talking about them being in prison. If you look at Acts 5, there's a great uh, story about them getting put in prison and they get let go and they go back out and preach the gospel and people can't believe this. And they say, you choose whether it's better to serve man or God, but we got to keep doing this. We cannot keep from preaching the message and serving our God. And so they bring them back and they don't quite know what to do. And then the word says this, they, that's referring to the Pharisees, beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then when they left the presence of the council, they left rejoicing. It's not normal. That's not the normal response to being beaten, is it? Rejoicing. Why? Well, it says because they, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor the name of Jesus Christ. And that's just like these Christians in this letter to the Hebrews. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Now just pause for a second and think about it. After church, or at least after the lunch today, I presume most of you will go home. Imagine when you arrive that your house has been ransacked. It has been plundered. Everything that is of value in an earthly sense has been taken. And everything that is not of value but is of great help to you has been smashed up. What's your response going to be? Are you going to be joyful? <laughs> it's a hard thing, right? To trust God is hard. And the question that must arise is how? How is it that these men and women presumably were joyful at the plundering of their property? It just There's something else going on in this text that releases the power. And it's very easy. You look at the text again, verse 34, because they knew something. They knew that they had a better possession, an abiding one, and an abiding one. They knew that there was something better, and it was abiding. You see, the problem with earthly possessions is they're not abiding. They break. They fall apart. We lose them. Ultimately, we lose everything, don't we? 
That's what happens when you die. You lose it. You can't take anything with you. You can't take your yacht to heaven or to hell if you have a yacht. I don't. But they knew that there was something better and it was abiding. They weren't interested in earthly riches because they knew the heavenly riches. And the question is, well, what is the better possession? What is it? Well, there are things that should automatically and immediately come to mind when you think of the possession that we have in Christ. I'll read Ephesians 1 to us, just little bits of it to remind us of the obvious things. In Christ we have, that's a possession, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, that's a, a thing that we, we have, we possess, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him, in Christ, we've obtained, we've got something, possessed something, an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's actually possession. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, listen, of our inheritance. That's a possession. until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And you could just go to that and say, well, they're the obvious possessions. The salvation, forgiveness of sins, isn't the end, is it? It's the means to something. And so what is it? Well, it is those things that really... I want us to think less about the things that we have in Christ and think more about having Christ. <laughs> He's the possession, isn't he? He's the thing that we inherit. It's a person. It's the son of the living God, the supreme one, the radiance of the glory of God. We possess him. In his family. We're in his kingdom. We are a brother to him or a sister to him. He is our brother. We are co-inheritors with him. We inherit what Christ inherits. You know, one uh, quite well-known uh, preacher says this. He says, if you entertain the idea of going to heaven and receiving all the joy and the peace and the sinless nature that we suddenly have, the perfection, the food, not, not, not in a, not in a uh, indulgent sense. You know, provision for things. If you can enjoy that idea and yet be happy with it without Christ, you've completely misunderstood the point. Jesus Christ, through His work on the cross, is calling people to be a people for His own possession. He possesses you. You get him. That's the vision, right? That's that's the thing that these Israel, these people in Jerusalem receiving this letter are thinking of. They're not thinking of the possessions in their house. They joyfully accepted that because they had something better. 
Jesus Christ himself, the better possession. Because their confidence was in him. In the midst of suffering, it was Christ. Listen, you can have all the possessions in the world. Like I said earlier, you're going to lose them all. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? The answer is nothing. It doesn't profit him at all. But if you don't forfeit your soul, if your soul is saved by Christ, then he becomes the treasure, doesn't he? He becomes the treasure. He's the one you live for. You lose everything. What is it, the, the quote that I think sometimes is attributed to Jim Elliot, but I'm not sure if it was originally him, but it's certainly in, in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's not foolish to give up the world and receive Christ, is it? He's the greater possession, for sure. And these men and these women made Christ their treasure. And as we know, the song tells us it's true. When you do that, the world grows strangely dim. Possessions aren't the big deal. This world is in love with many things. One of them is mammon, is possessions, is materialism, is money. People are obsessed with earning money. Why? Because it gives them more possessions. They think it brings security. Of course, it does none of those things because, as I've said, everybody in the end will give up everything they have. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's that's these guys. It's better possession. Oh, look, they plundered our house. Amen. That's what they do. Amen. We're suffering for the sake of Christ, for the gospel. Paul puts it like this, though I myself have got reason to have confidence in the flesh and materialism. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Pharisee. I'm on the tribe of, of Benjamin. I'm a Jew of Jews. It says, concerning the law, I'm blameless. And guess what? With zeal, I persecuted the church. That was seen to be good, right, by the, by the Jews? As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Listen, but whatever gain I had, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Listen, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. There it is. He's the better possession. And then Paul goes on and says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Listen, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of everything. Not only does he count it as loss, he's lost it. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. There it is. I may know Jesus Christ. 
and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. I don't care that I lost everything. I get to share in the sufferings of Christ for his name, for his glory. You know, with Paul, you could lock him up, but you couldn't shut him up. You locked him up and he just told everyone in the prison the gospel. People got saved in the prison. Jailers got saved. It's quite extraordinary. He wrote these amazing texts that we now call the Bible. He says, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Point number one then was when suffering comes, Christians get on with the work. Point number two, when suffering comes, Christians focus on a better lasting possession. Point number three is when suffering comes, Christians persevere. These are the characteristics of Christians. They persevere. They continue. I'll read it again. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him. For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I guess if you read this text carefully, if you know at the beginning of it, it says, just think back to when you first got saved. You were suffering, you had compassion on people. You weren't even concerned that people plundered your property because you knew what a better possession there is in Christ. But he kind of is moving now and saying, but what about now? How was then? Back then, what about now? Are you holding fast to your confidence? And throw it away. Because what you need now is endurance, because you're older. You're an older Christian. Probably say at least 30 years of a Christian this time, for some of these people, certainly. You need endurance because you've got to carry on with the will of God. It's going to continue in suffering. And some of you might sit here today and say, Well, I'm not suffering. Well, you are. You are in different ways. Well, not suffering for the sake of the gospel. Get out there and start sharing it. You'll soon experience suffering. I think it isn't there. I watched a video the other day of a man uh, preaching the gospel. Sorry, I'm digressing. People don't like this, but I think it's useful. Uh, it was uh, outdoor evangelism, and it was in a very famous uh, intersection in Los Angeles. And everyone was just going about their business and normal day, hustle and bustle and people having fun and laughing and walking about. And this man picked up a loud hailer and started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was like wolves coming out. He was physically attacked in seconds. It was quite terrifying. That is coming here. That if you go to Sydney or even go to the streets of Armadale and preach the gospel, that will happen. Will you endure Will you continue with the work to the end? Because that's when you receive it, right? That's when you get this inheritance, either when the Lord is revealed, as Peter 1, 
that picture of it all coming when Christ comes, or when you get called home, when you've fought the good fight to the end, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. Your need of endurance. The word for endurance is the same word for persevere, long-suffering, continuing, pressing on. All of those things are in there, not shrinking back as we see here. I just want to explain 37 and 38. It's a quote from Isaiah. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And that's obviously a reference to the Lord returning. But don't get the next bit wrong. But my righteous one shall live by faith is not a reference to Jesus. It's a reference to you. Because that's where perseverance is, right? In faith. In trusting in faith. You might say, well, I hope the writer tells us more about faith. Well, guess what? That's what happens in the next chapter. <laughs> that's where he goes. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the certainty of things unseen. By faith, yada, 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 all the way through that chapter. It's fantastic. God's grace, we'll get to it in a few weeks. In a little while, in the coming Jesus will come, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Mark this carefully. If he shrinks back, he does not continue in faith. My soul has no pleasure in him means He's not saved. Hard truth. Shrink back and continue in sin deliberately. Endure in faith no matter what's happening. Press on. Press on. And listen, come to church. Because that's where you get encouragement from the church. We get encouragement from the word to persevere, to press on. That's one of the reasons I come. That's what you do for me. You encourage me to continue. Real Christians do not go on sinning deliberately. If there is sin that comes and they're going on in it and it's deliberate, then they need to repent. It's hard. It's horrible. But I don't want any of us to be goats. Do you want to be a goat? Nobody here doesn't want to be a, a sheep that's saved. Nobody comes to church and says, oh, I actually just want to be a goat. I don't really want to be saved. Just make sure that you are. That's why this passage exists. For me, it's terrifying. I had to really question, you know. There's always a little bit of willful deliberacy in my mind, and I'm assuming in yours, about sin. But how do I respond to that? I have a Romans 7 experience, right? You know that? Why do I do the thing I know I shouldn't do, etc.? Cry out to God for mercy. That's a good sign. We need to get control of those sorts of things. Because at the end of it all, you receive a better possession. So if you're like me and you get to this point of this little message, you hopefully will ask the question, well, what about me? Do you relate to this? Is this completely abstract to you? Or is this very grounding? Am I a real Christian? Don't be fooled. Church has got plenty of non-Christians in it. As, uh, I think it was Spurgeon said, the Number one most consistent visitor of churches is Satan. 
They're not immune from Satan. But for Christ's grace, am I a real Christian? You know, years ago when I first came to Australia, um, I went to a, a men's Bible study associated with a different church. And as I say this, I don't want to pass judgment on anyone. It's not my ambition. And I thought, great, it's a men's Bible study. I'm from Britain, so uh, I probably will struggle to fit in. And the guys were very accommodating, um, obviously poking fun at my uh, my accent and so on, which is great. Good. I joyfully accepted that. Um, but after a while, I thought there's something missing in this men's Bible study. And it didn't take long for me to, to work it out. It was the Bible. It was missing. There's a group of men talking about Christian things. That was great. But it really was a back-slapping exercise. Uh, there's some encouraging things, but there's a lot of derision and humor. But there was no word speaking into our lives in the midst of it. And I don't know what I said. You can imagine I was a bit too bold and probably maybe rebuked a few people. I can't remember. But eventually I thought this is uh, not really edifying. I'll leave, and I left. And some years later, I bumped into the person that ran that study. And he came up to me, and he said, I've got a bone to pick with you. And I said, okay, pick away. And he said, uh, you made me feel like I wasn't a Christian. And I said, oh, are you sure that was me? What did you do about it? He said, well, I searched the scriptures and I questioned whether my life was fitting before Christ. And I said, and what did you discover? And he said, I discovered that it was. And I said, what a good thing to find out. What a good thing to find out. You do not want to be a goat. I think I ended up picking his bone, not, not the other way around. But uh, what about us? Am I a Christian? It's an appropriate question for us and there are some here not thinking of individuals but there are some here that no doubt need to ask am I a Christian and don't they come and they take it for granted because perhaps they just assume that because they read the Bible and they come to church that they're a believer well give it some thought based on today give it some thought based on this text you're going in with confidence you're entering the holy place with confidence, with the blood of Christ covering you as you go in, going through the veil that is his flesh, accepting the sacrifice for your sin, following him, having him as your treasure. Is that how you're going in, or are you sinning quietly in a hidden way in the background of life, deliberately? Don't be fooled. Please don't be fooled. But there are some here that need to be reminded that you are Christian. You are. You know Christ. You love him. And let me encourage you now to recall your former days. To think back to the days when you got saved, when you received the gospel. When you, as it were, took possession of Christ. The truth is he took possession of you, but you get the idea. When you made him your treasure, recall those days. I was chatting to someone the other day. I think I was actually just texting. And they told me that when this church was open, the day it was open was their fifth birthday. That was 70 plus years ago. 
former days, came into the church, at some point heard the gospel, grew up perhaps in a Christian family, heard the gospel and got saved. And tell me your lives don't have suffering in because I know they do. Are you getting on with the work? In spite of the suffering? Are you making Christ your possession that you know is better and longer lasting? Not longer lasting, eternally lasting, unlike the possessions of the world. And are you enduring? Recall your former days. We've suffered as a church. We've suffered greatly, especially in the last years. It's been very painful for many of you. The things that have happened have been groundbreakingly, earthquake-level suffering. But you're still here, still enduring, pressing on, making him your possession. Amen? Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Continue to make Christ your king, your possession, your treasure, your joy. Don't worry about what happens in this world. You'll lose everything one day to gain everything in Christ. Because you and me, I don't think we're of those that shrink back. We evangelize. That's where it's at. We're into discipleship. We're into this, the word of God. And we do suffer. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the um, binary picture, the truth that um, those that shrink back, those that continue in sin deliberately, don't really know you and will fall away. Thank you for the reality, Lord, that you are a God who is just. And so there is a fearful uh, approach to your throne. We are told that we can come boldly because of Christ, but it is something to be feared. But Lord, more than that, I thank you that through Christ we have confidence to come, to draw near to hold fast our confession, to come to church, to encourage and exhort one another to love and good deeds, all the more as Christ approaches. So, Lord, I pray in our suffering that you would help us to get on with the job, that we would joyfully accept all that happens to us in this world because we serve a better God. We have a better possession and the reward is enormous. So, Father, help us to that end again. If there be anybody here that does not yet know you, that has not truly confessed and sought you, I pray that today would be that day that they would simply cry out for help and that you, as you do, Lord, would bring mercy and grace to them that we might all rejoice together. And all God's people said, Amen.